This episode of the Alley on the Run show is brought to you by Aftershocks. Go to ontherun.aftershocks.com to save 15% on all wireless headphones. Welcome to the Alley on the Run show. I'm your host, Allie Feller, and every week I talk with inspiring people who lead interesting lives on the run and beyond. And while running is the thing that brings us all together, on these episodes, we cover more than what happens on the run. We learn the whys behind the runs, the decisions people have made to get where they are today, and how getting sweaty has factored in. Today, I am talking with Courtney Carter. You may know her because you've seen her byline a lot lately. Courtney recently wrote a great, really eye-opening piece for women's running called A Wish for U.S. Running from a Black Marathoner. And she contributes to the Wazelle blog, her piece about the use and misuse of the phrase colorblind now more than ever is a must read. And speaking of Wazelle, Courtney's been a part of Wazelle's volley team almost since it started, and she was just named Wazelle's advisor for diversity, equity, and inclusion. On this episode, we talk about what that means, and she shares her vision, not just for the Wazelle community, but for the running community at large. And the advisor role Courtney took on, it makes perfect sense for her. By day, she leads diversity initiatives at a large law firm in Washington, D.C. We cover it all on this episode, from Courtney's work, to her running story, to her hopes and dreams of breaking four hours in the marathon, which I absolutely know she can and will do. So let's hop to it. Please welcome Courtney Carter, or for her many Instagram fans out there, Eat, Pray, Run, DC, to the Alley on the Run show. Courtney, I feel like I have followed you and known who you are for like 10 years now since the, the original like heyday of running, blogging, and sharing. So it's really such an honor to get to actually chat with you. Thank you so much for being here on the Alley on the Run show today. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. We kick things off with a warm-up here on the show, nice and easy. All I need is for you to tell everyone who you are, where you're from, and what you do. Sure. Hi, everyone. I'm Courtney Carter. I live right in the nation's capital, Washington, D.C., And although I'm a lawyer by trade, I currently lead diversity and inclusion initiatives at a large law firm. Before we get into all that, let's just start with something happy. What's you told me today has been a good day. So tell me what's making you happy right now? Well, uh, at work today, we hosted our annual pride event and we had Kevin Jennings, who is the new ish CEO of Lambda Legal. Um, do a webinar for all of our Jenner employees today. And Kevin had a fantastic presentation that sort of took us through about 500 years of queer is essentially what he calls it. And um, it was an amazing intersectional presentation where we all just learned so much. And it was not just educational, but it was really powerful. So that was a win. I really enjoy my job. It's been immensely difficult over the past couple of weeks. So having a great presentation like that today was awesome. I love that. What is the biggest thing that you said you learned a lot? What's the biggest thing that stuck with you and that you learned today? Uh, I think one of the biggest takeaways 
for me was both how far we've come, but how much further we have to go. Kevin showed a graphic that highlighted all of the states in the United States where you can still on June 11th, 2020, um, lose your job and have no protection just because you're LGBTQ. And he also, what? yeah, and it's it's an, it's a number of states. I, I forget the exact number, but it's in the double digits, um, which is disappointing. I think something only like 30 plus odd states have passed employment protection for LGBTQ individuals, which is disappointing. Uh, he also showed a graph of countries where being out and being LGBTQ is still illegal. And, you know, that's not the case in the United States, but that is still the case in way too many countries. Um, I knew about the states, but sometimes it's easy to forget about the other countries where just simply being who you are is illegal. Um, so that was both a learning moment for me and also a reminder that you know we, we have come a long way in terms of thinking about LGBTQ rights, but we have a lot of work to do. I think particularly uh, when thinking about trans individuals, there's a lot of work that still needs to happen in that area. Oh, gosh, absolutely. And even thinking about certain current events that make people talk about these things more, I think about obviously it hasn't even been that long since it was made legal for same sex marriage in all 50 states. That wasn't even a decade ago. That was during the Obama administration. And then, you know, you think back to I don't know the year off the top of my head, but of course, I think when we talk about transgender rights and just transgender issues in general, a lot of people today might think of Caitlyn Jenner. And that wasn't that long ago. And I feel like that was a lot of people's first introduction to realizing that was even a thing. And so, yeah, I, I'm very passionate about both of those things. And and I know that's not why we're here today, but um, I I get I get really frustrated thinking about how far we still have to go on those issues and so many things that just seem like freaking basic human rights. Yeah. And I think, you know, something for me that has always not quite made sense to me is a lot of people will say things like, well, I just don't understand what being transgender means. I just don't get it. And my response has always been, that's okay. You don't have to understand something to recognize that it exists and to recognize that it has value. For example, I understand nothing about astrophysics, but I know that astrophysics is indeed a thing. And just because I don't understand it, that has zero bearing on what astrophysics is, how it plays out in the world. My lack of understanding is simply that, my lack of understanding, and it's okay. <laughs> I love that. I love that analogy. Well, I want to talk a little bit more about the work you do since you mentioned it. You are a lawyer. You lead diversity initiatives at a large law firm. So you're not new to this work. You We're hearing your voice a lot now and we value it so much, but you've been doing this and using your voice really powerfully for a long time. Can you talk a little bit about what exactly your job entails and what are some of the challenges that your job presents now more than ever? Sure. 
Uh, so as I mentioned, I lead DNI. I'm the director of DNI for my firm, and um, we have about 500 lawyers, and then probably about 400 professional staff. And we're a full-time team of two. Uh, I have a coordinator who reports to me, and then I report in to our chief talent officer. That being said, I work all across the firm. So even though we're a small team, we collaborate with everyone. We collaborate with our lawyers. We collaborate with other professional staff. So our recruiting team, we work with them very closely because obviously recruiting is a big part of our DNI initiative. But we also work very closely with our professional development team because it's not just about bringing people in, but it's about giving them opportunities to learn and grow so you can develop them and retain them and advance them through leadership structures within the firm. Um, I work with our marketing team on all of our great communications. I work with all of our lawyers. We we really do any and everything. So we manage all of our affinity groups. We have nine affinity groups at the firm, um, uh, ranging from racial and ethnic affinity groups of all kinds to a veteran and military families group to a women's forum. We have an awesome caregivers group that this year, over the last three months or so, while we've been in this work from home situation, have really stepped up and been supporting each other sharing resources, um, helping each other stay sane while many of them are working from home with small children, which I just have a dog. I can't imagine what that must be like. <laughs> um, so that group has been amazing. We design training and programs for uh, our folks on inclusion, inclusive leadership, on unconscious bias. We think about, so for example, like many organizations We've put out internal and external statements recently. We are very involved in those. We think about, you know, what are the things that we can be doing to help create a more inclusive environment, to help diverse lawyers at our firm succeed. And it's really all up and down the chain. So it's really interesting because it changes all of the time. And it's been really since we've been working from home, it's been like drinking from a, a fire hose, um, <laughs> but not in a bad way, just in a very intense way. And it, it does keep it interesting. I, I certainly never say, oh, I'm so bored at work. There's just nothing going on. Um, we, so right now, for example, our summer program just started on Monday. And so we have about 50 summers and fellows that are joining us remotely because everyone's remote right now uh, for eight weeks. So we think about, you know, what are the things we're going to do for our summers and how are we going to introduce them to what we do surrounding DNI? Um, really, you name it and we do it. Um, it's great in the sense that this is something that I care about on a deep personal level. And I think it can be rare for someone to get the chance to do something that they care about personally and at the same time that is consisting of their actual day-to-day -day work. And I feel really fortunate that I'm able to combine the two. Um, 
And I, you know, use my law degree in all different sorts of ways, even though I don't practice law anymore, the skills and training that I learned and developed while in law school and as a practicing lawyer are things that come into play pretty much every single day. So how did you make that transition from practicing lawyer to the role you're in now? Were you just like, you know what? I don't want to do this anymore. This is what I want to do. Pitch the idea. And they say like, we love it. Go. How did that conversation work? And and I'm curious where the idea came from on your part. Yeah. So um, it would be really cool if it kind of played out how you mentioned, <laughs> but it was nowhere near that linear. Uh, when I graduated <laughs> from law school, which is um, over a decade ago, I graduated in 2007. So I'm pushing my... 15 year law school in, uh, reunion at this point, uh, I didn't even know that jobs like mine existed. And they did, but I had no clue. Um, I, when I was a summer associate at a law firm while I was in law school, I was a summer at two different firms. Neither of them had someone in, the, in a role where they were focused on DNI. You know, we had a diversity committee, but we didn't really do much. Um, I just didn't even know it was a possibility. I did, though, realize pretty quickly after starting a practice of law that uh, I did not love the type of practice that I was doing. I liked my firm. I liked the people. And this was not at my current firm where I work. Um, it was at another firm that I did enjoy. But I thought that the work I was doing was just mind-numbingly boring, <laughs> to be frank. <laughs> and I didn't really know what I wanted, but I knew it wasn't that. And so um, I thought, well, what, you know, what should I be doing? What can I be doing? What are my options? Um, and I didn't, I didn't really know. And so I did what, you know, maybe many 25 year olds do when you're kind of like, I don't know what I want to do, but it's not this. I moved back home. <laughs> um, so I moved from the South to the DC area. And after sort of thinking about, oh gosh, what do I want to do? I decided I'd go back to school and get a, what's called a master's of law degree in LLM. And I decided I'd get an LLM in government, in law and government. And I thought that I would use that as a way to introduce myself to the DC legal market since I was just coming back and looking for a job. And um, I didn't know that at the time, but that decision really just sort of changed the course of my career. I participated in a program while I was getting my LLM where I, it was a pipeline program. And I, I went into uh, this history teacher's class every Friday for a year. And I taught his 10th graders all day. I taught them oral advocacy and constitutional law. And I loved it, uh, which then caused me to have a panic attack because I had spent lots of money on law school <laughs> and it could not be that I spent all this money and I'm going to be a teacher um, because te being, and I say that not because I don't value teachers. I think it's one of the most incredibly difficult jobs 
But if I was going to do that, I should have figured that out before I, uh, <laughs> you know, got one post college degree and was in the middle of a second. So um, <laughs> I, I found a job after that LLM program where I managed a legal externship program, sort of combined the teaching piece that I liked um, and still in the legal field. And that was just sort of the start of me finding these kind of law adjacent jobs that kept me connected to the legal community, but weren't direct legal practice. I still was doing some pro bono work on the side uh, and volunteering with a, a victim's right works organization at the time as well. And very long story short, that led to me getting involved and running a legal diversity pipeline program. And I loved that work. And I kind of felt like this is what I'm supposed to be doing, combining my legal degree with focusing on equity and looking at issues surrounding diversity and inclusion. And it was the perfect match for me. Uh, and I started to meet people in that industry. And you know, fast forward a few years, a woman that I had known at a previous job, we connected and stayed close and were very friendly. And she was looking to bring someone in to her law firm to manage diversity and inclusion. And um, I decided to take that job. And it was, you know, it was about four, four and a half years ago. And uh, I've been at my firm ever since. And it is incredibly challenging work, but it's also incredibly meaningful. And that is what helps to sustain me during the times like now where it's really difficult to do this type of work. I love that story. And I so appreciate you sharing the journey to getting where you are today, because I think so many people, we look at people like you, who it's like, she has this amazing job and it seems so fulfilling and she's changing the world. And we don't often realize that, like you said, it's not always a linear route to get there. And so for, for anyone listening, who's having that same conversation that you had in your head when you were 25 of what do I want to do? You can have that conversation at any time in your life and the path might not be linear, but I have faith that we will all get there. And so I appreciate you sharing the, the twists and turns on the way to where you are today. Yeah. I, I think that what you said is really important. It's not linear and it, is probably always going to be changing. Exactly. And that's a beautiful thing. You know, I think there's some research on this now that the number of jobs people have over a lifetime is significantly higher than it was 20, 30 years ago. People are much more apt to do something new, change careers, change locations, do all of these things that are different. And I think that's amazing. I think that's a gift to be able to redefine your career under your terms and to go into something that perhaps you didn't even know existed is something that many of our parents or grandparents, that idea is really foreign to them because we're just in a different world today. And I, I think that being nimble and being flexible and open to opportunities is one of the best things that you can do. And we're in a really interesting place because we can have so much access to people who do things that we think are cool. And I think it can just really help to expand your mind into like, wow, the sky is the limit. I mean, I if you would have told law school me what I would be doing now, I would be like, well, that sounds cool, but 
I don't even think that's a thing. So <laughs> it's just just being open and and flexible and always willing, I think, to to talk to people and to to learn, I think can be incredibly helpful. I love that that it you didn't know that that was a thing because I also think that if you can think about what you're passionate about and what you want to do and you either don't think it's a thing or it's not a thing, go make it a thing, right? Like there's so much like excitement around that. I don't know. I got goosebumps when you said that. I just, I'm excited. Yeah. And it's, it is, like you said, it wasn't linear and it has taken me a long time to figure out what that looks like for me. But it's also led to opportunities that are incredible. I mean, I um, have had a chance to partner with Wazelle, a brand, a brand I've been in love with and involved with for all of these years, but now I'm getting to work with Wazelle and advise on DEI issues, which like that's even more cool. I'm like, I love to run. I love these women. I love this brand. And I get to use a little bit of my expertise to help a, a brand, a company and, and leaders that I very much respect. It's just been pretty wild. And I would guess that you probably think about this similarly to think about where being open and honest about who you are and your interests can take you. Yes. Okay. So let's talk about that. You are the official Wazelle advisor for diversity, equity, and inclusion. Tell us that whole story. How did that role come about? What does it mean to you? What are you hoping to do with it? Let's get the whole backstory on this new advisor role. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's probably something that was seven or eight years in the making. I joined Wazelle back in, I, I can't recall if it was 2012 or 2013, but it was, I mean, forever ago is what it feels like. And I joined because I had read online that they made shorts that fit real women. And I hadn't run in shorts since high school at that time um, because I have a butt and thighs and like shorts never worked. So I tried out a pair of shorts, a pair of the Roga shorts, and I loved them. So it kind of put the brand on my radar. I didn't even know when I bought the shorts that it was a women-owned company. I had no idea. I just wanted shorts that fit. Then when I realized I liked the shorts, I started to research a little bit into what the company was about, who was behind the company. And I saw they had an ambassador team. And I'm a pretty social person. I like to join stuff. So I was like, well, that sounds cool. I'll join, I'll apply. And this was back when to join the Wazelle Volet, you had to apply. I had no idea how competitive it was. I applied and was accepted. And I was like, oh, this is really fun. And it just started a really beautiful friendship uh, between myself and Sally, who founded the brand, and Sarah Lesko's uh, one of the leaders and I just through time got to know the women who run the company and came to very much respect them and enjoy them. And over the years, we became genuine friends um, to the extent that, you know, I've hosted them in my home and, you know, 
I just bought a condo about a year ago and I made sure I had a guest room because I was like, well, I have to be able to <laughs> host my people when they come into town. And, um, and we have had for years really open, honest conversations about a lot of things, but including about you know, issues surrounding race, issues surrounding privilege. Um, we've talked a lot about my job and about what I do and things that I wanted for the team and, and for the brand. And uh, I'm not shy in sharing my opinion. I love dialogue and I love engaging with people. Uh, I think that one of the best things about being trained as a lawyer and the work that I do professionally is it's really taught me how to have difficult conversations and it's taught me how to be able to engage and have conversations where you're not necessarily agreeing, but you can have a, a discourse that is respectful and purposeful, even if you're like, oh, we don't quite see this eye to eye, but let's talk about it and let's talk about why. And I love that. And so, you know, I've had challenging conversations about race with the women who run this company. And it must have been, gosh, time is such a blur now. I <laughs> think it was maybe a year ago, but maybe it might have been more recent. Um, Let's just say between- <laughs> Might have been yesterday. Right. We have no concept of time. Right, I know. It was sometime in what I'm calling the before. Uh, <laughs> we were all together and um, kind of broached this idea. I, I had been pushing, so I've been a Wazelle local DC team leader for years since they developed leaders on the team. And there's leaders all across the country and the world. And it's an amazing group. Um, but about a year, two years ago, I started really pushing leadership of Wazelle to consider instituting a sort of leader of leader things. And I'm not going to get like into the weeds on that, but that's a little bit relevant to this, that I was saying, hey, we should um, consider giving the leaders a resource, someone they can go to, to help them as they're sort of managing these teams and we're figuring all of that out. So fast forward to, you know, whatever, a year, eight months, sometime in the before. And uh, <laughs> Sally broached the idea of incorporating more diversity, equity, and inclusion training and support for specifically for the team and for the leaders on the team. And I thought it was a great idea. We just had some initial conversations. And then fast forward um, a few months and we sort of just hashed out the details of what it might look like. What does it mean? Sort of like time expectations and what we thought might make sense. And uh, we came to where we are, where I have this role and I work with headquarters, and I work with the Volet team leaders as a resource and providing some training and being able to answer questions and, and help to guide. And uh, it's, it's really exciting. And I think that it's really forward thinking for the brand to do this. And I'm happy to be a part of it. Um, we can all grow, myself included. And so 
being able to be a part of the growth of others on this team and specifically helping the leaders of which I'm passionate about supporting them because I am a leader and everyone needs support and everyone sort of wants to create a more inclusive environment in general. The devil is in the details on how to do that and, and what that looks like and what that means. And so to be able to facilitate some of those conversations surrounding running and diversity is, again, another thing that I never would have necessarily thought I'd be doing, but I love it. So is the work that you're doing with them, is it very much contained to within the Wazal brand? Or do you have a vision that goes beyond Wazal, that maybe it starts there, but are you looking at the running community and industry as a whole, or are you pretty much focused right now on what's happening within the company, within the volet, within the Wazal community? Ooh, that's an interesting question. So <laughs> yes, and uh, <laughs> right now, yes, I'm, I'm focused on Wazal and sort of what's happening uh, with the team and the brand and the ballet, but you know, I think about what's happening in running more broadly all the time, and um, you know, I've kind of been on fire about diversity and running since coming back from the trials, and um, so thinking more broadly about that and thinking more openly about that is definitely on my mind. And I'm definitely charged up in the sense that I really want to see some different things from running, ranging from how running is covered, who gets covered, to what running looks like, and I'm speaking specifically about distance running, about, you know, sort of the after college, what that looks like. Um, so I am very focused on what's happening with Wazel, but I am also thinking more broadly than that and thinking about running as an institution and, and what that looks like and how can we do better? Because we definitely need to do better. Absolutely. And, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if we start seeing whether it's brands or even local clubs and teams following in Wazel's lead of appointing an advisor and having someone who can lead in that direction. And, and I don't know, I mean, I saw that when uh, Wazelle and when you announced that, that you were having this position. And my first thought was like, this is going to start something like we're going to see more brands following suit, putting people in positions where they can advise and lead. And I just think it's super smart. And I'm really excited to see where it goes and not just what you do with it. But yeah, I hope that it has a massive not, you know, trickle effect is way too minor of a word, but like a volcanic effect in the running industry, because like you, I, I was at the trials. We all saw the statistics. We all saw the field. We all saw the New York Times piece that very clearly stated 1% of the qualifiers in the women's field 
we're black 1%. Yeah. That's so tiny. And, and yeah, if you were watching, I mean, look, I was out there watching the race and I literally remember Peyton, who Peyton was on the show a couple weeks ago. Yeah. I remember her running by because I was like, oh, a black girl. We haven't seen many. Yeah. Like, and that, Even you know, and, every loop. Yeah. Yep. Can't miss and her. so it, you know, we we all saw it and we're aware of it. And so and, and you wrote that you talked about that in this wonderful piece that you wrote for Women's Running, which if if people listening have not yet read that, I will, of course, link to that in the show notes. But the piece that you wrote for Women's Running that talked a bit about that, it was called A Wish for U.S. Running from a Black Marathoner. Like I said, everyone should go read it. But I would love to talk a little bit more about those wishes right here beyond what you put in the piece right now. What is top of mind for you? What is your one big wish, call to action, whatever it is for U.S. running right now, distance running specifically? I mean, honestly, I'm still waiting for Alephine to get the proper coverage that she deserved when she won the freaking trials. You know, like that's what really pissed me off to be frank and sort of gave me this idea to like write this thing which was a lot angrier when I first started writing it and then quarantine hit and corona hit and I was just like oh gosh I'm tired but um to me that was so incredibly disappointing not surprising but so disappointing and still and now it's almost like, well, it's kind of too late, you know, but the, that time has passed. I don't know if I totally believe that, but the fact that in the days after the trials, I was Googling to ensure that I didn't miss something. And I was Googling Alphine and there was just very little coverage of her there was almost no mention of how this was historic because the United States has never sent a black woman marathoner to the Olympics and we're sending two. And I have seen very little mention of that. It blew my mind, Allie, honestly. And the fact that the vast majority of the coverage was focused on Molly was just baffling. Not that Molly didn't deserve the coverage. Molly is an incredible runner and has an amazing story. But I think you can even, there have been some interviews with Molly where she's like, listen, if you were to read some of the stories, it would just appear as if Molly was just this Boston barista who just rolled yep. out of the cafe and onto the marathon course and oh look now she's going to the Olympics. You know, so there's a problem with reporting in general, but it was it was really, really incredibly frustrating to see quite clearly the lack of coverage and to compare it to the coverage that Molly received. You know, I think there's a lot of reasons for that, um, but race is certainly one of them. And I think that as a part of sort of this wish, I, people have to 
you know, sort of the, um, I don't know if you ever used to watch the real world, but that, oh, yeah. that, that tagline and stop being polite and start getting real, right? <laughs> like, let's be real and call a spade a spade. And people have to start looking at what's going on globally, but also locally. What does your running club look like? Who do the people you run with look like? What are the books you read? Who are they by? You know, all of these things that these individual decisions and these individual choices that we make all come together and sort of change the landscape. So if I had to take all of that and surmise it into one wish for running, I think that for me, that would be, I hope that people open their eyes and start doing the work to educate themselves about what racism looks like and start thinking about how they can help to change that because it's going to take, it's going to take individual work and then it's also going to take, you know, larger work to uh, dismantle this big systemic problem. But there's a lot that can be done on a one-on-one -on -one individual basis. So I, I would hope that people would start there. And I think the running community, you know, that all of us listening right now, we're part of the running community. I think, and this is just me speaking, I think that's a great place to start. I know that over the past couple of weeks, I, I can't speak for anyone but myself, but it's felt like this overwhelming, like, I need to step up and solve racism, like centuries of it. Like, I can't sleep because I need to solve this. Right. And, you know, maybe one individual can't solve that in a day. But let's start within our own community. What can we do in the running community? How do we bring more people to our running group who don't look exactly like us? What stories do we elevate? And just all that to say that you know, for people listening, I think maybe if you're feeling overwhelmed by everything going on and by, you know, feeling like it's a it's a big mountain to climb and it is and we're going to keep climbing it. But maybe let's start in the running community that we love so much and care about so much. Let's start there and let's let that have the volcanic trickle effect into the rest of the world. I don't know. Maybe I'm like, putting too dreamy of a statement on this. And I, I know that can sound a little delusional, but I think that, you know, if we have voices in the running community, let's use those and let's start there. Break time. Let's chat for a minute about our sponsor, Aftershocks. I am very excited to share this little story today. So I was out for a run the other day, running the lovely, quiet streets of Kentuckuk, New Hampshire. And usually on my runs, I see zero people and several chipmunks and sometimes a hawk or two. But on this run, not only did I see a fellow runner, but that runner was wearing Aftershocks wireless headphones. I was so excited. First, just excited to see another runner. It felt like being back in Central Park but also so excited to see a runner in this tiny town wearing my absolute favorite headphones that I talk about every week here on the Alley on the Run show. I really wanted to stop him and be like, where'd you buy your Aftershocks? How'd you hear about them? Do you love them? And I could have asked those questions and he would have heard me because one of the many beauties of Aftershocks is you can hear your music, your podcasts, your audiobooks, 
and hear your surroundings. And me, I was the surroundings, so he could have heard me. My inner monologue was strong, but instead of unleashing it, I just did a little awkward wave and half smile and continued on my merry way. Case in point, everyone is wearing Aftershocks wireless headphones from Kentucky, New Hampshire, all around the world. Come be part of the Shock Squad. Join us. Go to ontherun.aftershocks.com. You will get 15% off any wireless headset. That's ontherun.aftershocks.com for 15% off. Let's get back to Courtney Carter, shall we? What a lot of people, and specifically what a lot of white people are feeling right now, that we're sort of in the second week of this, to some people, new awareness. People are feeling like, man, I'm exhausted. Like, yeah. Welcome to being awake about racism. It is exhausting. But this is it. Like, this is the fight. It's not a one and done. It's not a, we're going to like post something. It's not even just reading one book. You know, it's great to buy the books, buy the books. I've been telling people about books they should read. You should buy the books. Then you should read the book. not just buy it, you should then read it, and then you should apply it. And that's, you know, this work is hard. Unlearning things that have been taught to us is difficult work. And retraining ourselves is difficult work, but it's work that needs to be done and it's work that matters, but it's not easy. And it's certainly not sexy. And there's going to be lots of moments that you would never post on Instagram because you're like just upended and crying and upset because it's hard. But it matters. And so a part of that is asking yourself some questions and just starting to I mean, thinking about running. It's like, who do you run with? What does that group look like? Might there be something that could be done there? Probably, you know. Who's not at the table, so to speak? Well, why? Why would they not feel comfortable? Why haven't they? Did they come and have a bad experience? I mean, there's a whole host of reasons, but thinking about it at a local level and and starting with yourself, I wholeheartedly agree with that suggestion. I'm glad you mentioned posting and Instagram because that's come up a lot lately. That like, Oh, you know, I posted my black tile. I ordered white fertility. Like, I'm good. I'm in this. And we know that there is more to it than that. And that this is lifelong. Like, this isn't two weeks and then we go, quote, back to normal. Like, I literally heard someone the other day, heard, saw someone the other day talking about, like, I don't know when to go back to normal with my posting. And I was like, I feel really icky about this conversation right now. But you posted on Global Running Day, a sentiment that I thought was really, really wonderful that, you know, you can share your happy running moments and know that things are kind of terrible right now, but you can still have those happy moments and that this is lifelong work. And I'm going to quote you. You wrote, no one is asking you to be miserable all the time or to only talk about how you are helping to end racism. We are asking you to actively do the work, but feel free to do other stuff too. It's okay. I promise. And I loved that because 
it's like you said, it's not one and done. It's not I read the book. I'm good. Pat on the back, like gratuitous posts about it. That's not what this is. This is our world. And this is important. And so I just wanted to point out that post specifically that like, you can feel many things right now. I don't know. I just it I, I thought that you summed things up in a way that I know I appreciated him and liked to read. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's learning to live in that discomfort. Exactly. I mean, people have been doing it for centuries. You know, honestly, that's what being Black in America is like. There's a lot of crap that happens all the time, but you still have to like live your life. You still have to go to work. You still have all of these happy, normal things that happen. And, you know, I just think about too, there's a line and I'm not going to quite quote it. So I'll say I'm going to paraphrase it because I know I'm going to mess it up. <laughs> In uh, the diary of Anne Frank, there's a passage that essentially is talking about everything that's happening, which is obviously horrible. And most of the people that are currently, this is when the Franks are in hiding um, in their neighbor's attic. And most of the people end up, end up dead. They don't make it. But the, this particular passage is basically saying, but yet life went on. Games were played. Joy was had, you know, and that's true because this isn't a one and done. It's not as if you should never post something that's happy or you should only post things that are talking about fill in the blank. What's important is what you are doing and that you're increasing your awareness of what you're doing, how you're spending your money, how you're voting, how you're supporting, how you're amplifying others. It's, it's all of these things. But within all of these things, you're still going to go to work, even though that might just be moving from your bedroom to your living room. <laughs> you're still going to have your family and walk your dog and have these and celebrate graduations. One of the things that's been the best and most amazing joy for me has been watching all of these graduation videos that people have posted and watching stranger. I mean, I don't know these people, but it's just been so great to see these happy moments because there are always happy moments, even in the midst of a global pandemic, even in the midst of centuries old racism, even in the midst of political upheaval and uncertainty, even in all of those things, there is still so much good and so much to be grateful for, and so much joy, even in the midst of everything that's going on. And I think it's okay, and someone might disagree with me, and I'm okay with that, but I think it's okay to recognize that, and I think it's okay to acknowledge that. I remember back in the day when you were like blogging for women's running <laughs> yeah. their website and it was like, it wasn't even like, here's what Courtney's up to. It was like, eat, pray, run DC. Yeah. Is that a race today? Like they referred to you by your Instagram name, yeah. which I thought was so funny. And so I feel like I've known you as that for so long and I would love to do a little pivot here because we haven't shared your running story. We need to get into the, you know, the Instagram name, Eat, Pray, Run, DC. We know you're on the run all the time. It's my understanding that your dad was the one who inspired you to start running. So take us back to the beginning. What Do you remember your first run? How did it all happen? I remember 
a lot of biking while my dad was running um, and struggling to keep up. Now, I think I was like six to eight. I talked to my dad the other night and told him, hey, dad, you know, I said in this interview, I, I told the story of how I used to bike while you would run. And he's like, yeah, you were like 13 and you couldn't keep up. And it's like, that's not true. I was not 13 and couldn't keep up with you on a bike. Uh, but in, I mean, my dad doesn't even probably know what podcasts are, so he probably will never hear this. But just in case I'm, you know, trying to get provide both sides of the story. But I used to ride my bike while my dad ran. And that piqued my interest in running uh, because I am a daddy's girl. And so I wanted to do everything that my dad did. And my dad ran a lot. He never really ran longer than the 10 mile race was his, that was his jam. He would run the cherry blossom 10 miler. He would run the army 10 miler. My dad was in the air force. So particularly the army 10 miler every year, he loved to run that. And, and my dad was fast. He used to run the army 10 miler in about an hour, um, which is, you know, for a casual runner, that's, that's quite quick. Unfortunately, that didn't quite pass down to me, um, but the love of running did. And I, I ran track in high school. I think I actually only ran track because I couldn't make the basketball team. <laughs> I wasn't good enough and track didn't cut anyone. So I ran track and was a sprinter and a hurdler. And that was awesome. I loved it. It was really fun. I went to college and barely ran like maybe a couple times on a treadmill here and there went to law school and my last year of law school a group of us formed what we called the brown girls run club and we all trained for our first 10 miler and then our first half marathon together and that was in 2007. Uh, i went to law school at uva out in charlottesville and if anyone's listening that lives in Charlottesville or went to school in Charlottesville, you know that Charlottesville is incredibly hilly. And the course for that half marathon <laughs> just like took us out basically into the country and I hated it. <laughs> um, that was 2007 and I didn't run another half marathon again until 2012. <laughs> That's how much I did. <laughs> I didn't do it again for five years. And then, and I, I felt for certain that, you know, that was, I was never going to run any further. I had no interest in that. Uh, and then fast forward to April of 2013 and the Boston bombing happened. Uh, I was devastated, like so many people. And if somehow that devastation and grief and rage turned into, well, I'm going to show them, I'm going to run a marathon. And so shortly after Boston, I signed up for my first marathon, which was Richmond in November of 2013. I love it. I also love First, I love how many people's running stories start with, well, I couldn't make X team, so I ran. Like, I love how common that is. 
Also, the breaks that people take of like, <laughs> yeah, I ran. It was my whole life. I identified as a runner. Uh, five years later, <laughs> I went for my next run. Um, but I think it's cool that like you can be a runner. I mean, I'm very like once a runner, always a runner. It's always there for you. You can always come back to it. And I just think that's part of the beautiful thing about this sport is it's not like you have to wait for like the next basketball draft or the next like big pickup soccer game to like choose you for their team i'm for sure butchering all of these I wouldn't know, um, so it sounds good to me <laughs> yeah i don't talk sports because not good at that uh all that to say that i love that running is just it it can be accessible and you can come back to it when you're ready for it and it's still there for you so you run your first marathon what was it about 26.2 that made you say like this is my jam I love the marathon. Yeah. So I think this is probably going to be relatable to a lot of people. You know, I ran it. Um, I was massively, massively undertrained. Um, <laughs> tears, the whole thing, like <laughs> so many prayers, you know, Jesus, please give me your feet, all kinds of things. <laughs> like, I just was like, had no idea. You know, you don't know what you don't know. And there was so much I don't know. And even more, I didn't know then. I was like, I'm never doing this again. I finished, you know, talked to my parents. I was like, oh, I don't think I'm going to do that again. Then I was like, okay. And then as so many people do, you know, the next day or maybe even later that day, it's like, well, you know, I could probably go like 30 seconds faster every mile. That's not much. <laughs> but if I run 30 seconds faster, for 26 miles, that's 13 minutes and change. I could do that. And then, you know, you sign up for the next one. And and then it's just all over. And I think it was uh, the training and just the sense of like, wow, I did this thing. You know, when I finished, it's like, wow, I, I honestly didn't think I was going to finish. I did this amazing thing that not a lot of people do. Maybe I can do it better. And having a focus on achieving in an area that was not at all connected to my professional life was something that I really liked. And being able to set goals, you know, I set a lot of goals, both for what I want us to do as a firm, but what I want for my career and having a whole new arena to set these goals was attractive for me and was something that really resonated with me because I'm a goal-oriented type of person. I like having goals. And so this whole new world of setting goals for my running really fueled me. So what about right now? We know that races are not happening, or at least big races are not happening for a while. There's a lot of uncertainty there. As a very goal-oriented person on the run, did you have running goals for the spring, summer, or fall? And how is your running now without races on the calendar and without any race-specific goals? Yeah, it's been really rough. <laughs> uh, I took most of 2019 off of running to rehab an Achilles injury that's not 100% yet, but is good enough that I can run. And I'm probably at like maybe 85, 90%, so pretty decent. Uh, so 2020 was supposed to be a comeback year. I'm signed up for the Richmond Marathon in November. 
I have no expectation it's going to happen. And honestly, even if it did happen, I would not be running it. I would not be comfortable with uh, running a large race yet. So, I mean, it's still, my watch still tells me exactly how many days are there are until the Richmond Marathon. I probably won't change that. But it's been really difficult. At the beginning of quarantine, I was much more focused and like, okay, great. I'm like really dialing in to this. Um, lately, it's been difficult just because, I think just because I'm exhausted. I've been working a lot more than normal and sort of around the clock. And so my running has suffered and I've just been tired and it's getting hot in DC. <laughs> um, and our summers are just awful. The heat, but particularly the humidity, it, it always takes about a month for me to get used to it. Uh, and honestly, with not having to go into my office, I just have been really struggling with like waking up super early to get the runs in, which is my normal routine. So running has been like, so for example, I'm running tomorrow and I'll probably run Saturday. I've run one other time this week. So it hasn't been great, but I'm kind of okay with it because, you know, this is just what's going on and I'm doing the best that I can. And that's all I can do right now. Yeah, I'm right there with you. I mean, I'm not even a big race focused person. I run best when I just like sign up on a whim and don't train and show up because then I'm not stressed about it. But I mean, I think that's the biggest thing that I've been hearing from a lot of runners right now is like, how do I find meaning on the run? What is my why? What is my motivation? And it's not easy to figure that out. Even when this is a sport that we kind of inherently love, it's hard to navigate through those feelings, I think. Yeah, not having any goals has has been difficult. Um, my next big running goal is to break four hours in the marathon. And, um, you know, it's like, very excited about Richmond. It's the only marathon I've run more than once. I love that race. My brother-in-law was going to sign up and wants to break four too. I was also going to run with Bob Lesko, who's Sarah's, Sarah Lesko's husband, also wants to break four. Uh, I was trying to put together a very elite pace squad for us. <laughs> oh, that's so awesome. Oh. <laughs> Which is like so ridiculous, but I was like, Asking awesome. my friends that are, you know, professional runners who are always like, oh, yeah, I'll come. Like, they should, like, okay, so you want to come to Richmond in November and pace us to four hours? Yeah. The four hour group is always a huge pace group. I don't want to be with all those people. I want to be with like people I know. So when I'm like, just leave me behind to die, they'll be like, no, Courtney, <laughs> move your butt. We're going. Oh my god. <laughs> Which is like something I would for sure shout in the middle. I was going to say like who hasn't said that at mile 20 right. or like mile 10 or right. whatever it is. Right. Oh my gosh, very relatable, yeah. very relatable. Well, for what it's worth, in 2012, which was the year the New York City Marathon was canceled, I spent that whole year training to run. I wanted to break 4 in the marathon. And my friend was going to come up. She lived in D.C. at the time. She was coming up from D.C. because she was 
like she was also entered she was going to pace me to sub four which like yeah that's so nice like a friend that's like yeah i'll run a marathon with you at my casual pace like for your biggest goal but that was the year that it got canceled so she had already she like was about to board her flight or whatever and i called and was like hey marathon's canceled found a backup marathon in new hampshire can you change your flight she changed her flight flew to new hampshire Pace me to so I'm just saying like the running community is magic and whether it's you know it may not be Richmond but if you just want to go out and run 26.2 I will drive down in my car I will make a finish line tape for you <laughs> out of toilet paper I will hold it up while wearing a mask I will stay six feet away and then I will drive back home like whatever you need we are here for you <laughs> well um thank you and I may take you up on it and I actually I'm that. ready you know there's some people that are like oh yeah I'll, like take you up on it no, I'll like actually take you on it. No, like I'm in. Like I'm already thinking about outfits. I'm ready. <laughs> you just say the word. Also, DC is my favorite, favorite city. I always say that if I were to live in a different city, it would be DC. I love it there so much. Where is your favorite DC running route? Um, I mean, you know, the mall is awesome. And it's so fortunate that we have all these beautiful sites in our backyard. I mean, I'm literally two miles from Capitol Hill, but I, my favorite place to run, I think, in all of DC is uh, this paved trail. It's called the Anacostia River Trail, and it's, it hugs the Anacostia, as one might guess, it hugs the Anacostia River. Uh, It's was expanded a few years ago. So you can go about, you know, 16 to 17 miles into Maryland on this trail. It's awesome. And parts of it take you through wooded areas of DC where you don't feel like you're in a large city. You feel like you're, you know, sort of out in the suburbs, but you're literally a few miles from downtown. And it's just, peaceful and I mean I've seen tons of deer there which is not something people imagine you see when you're running in DC um but it I just I love it it's my favorite trail it's where I do most of my in the days when I do workouts which is not not these days <laughs> in the before time and maybe in the future time when I do running workouts I do all of my speed work and tempo work there because you can run uninterrupted instead of you know sort of on the city streets oh see it's the best i love it i mean granted i haven't been to dc since pre-2016 so i feel like i was like it was very exciting back then i haven't been in a long time i would like to come back yeah but you know yeah you you should be out come on back there's some new things to see well i'm gonna come with my toilet paper finish line (laughs) exactly exactly i'm ready for you all right well speaking of finish lines are you ready to do our sprint to the finish round here on the Alley on the Run show. I hope so. <laughs> You're ready. I feel good about this for you. What would your last meal on earth be? Probably pizza. Favorite movie? Now that is hard. Um, oh, <laughs> maybe set it off. <laughs> nice. Favorite TV show? Sex in the City. Classic. Who was your childhood celebrity crush? Mm. Probably Denzel Washington, maybe Will Smith. Nice. Where did you have your first real kiss? 
<laughs> oh, this little boy's backyard. <laughs> L- I, little boy. Not like, like, I mean, like, nice. you know, 12, 13. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if you could go for a run with anyone, we're all dying to run with people again. But dream scenario, if you could go for a run with anyone, who would it be? I just like who doesn't. I just love Michelle Obama. So I love to run with her. And she's like super fit. So. So fit. Hands down, most popular answer on this show. <laughs> we just got to get her into like a running group. She's the best. Yeah. All right. You decide you are going to host your own running podcast. Courtney on the run. You can call it whatever you'd like. Who is your dream interview? Alephine. Yes. Love that. I just got my beanie in the mail. Her Etsy shop sells out like constantly. And I just got mine. It's pink. And she sends like a little signed picture of herself with it that says, thank you. And it made me so happy. Love it. Love her. When you were little, what did you want to be when you grew up? Um, I wanted to be a psychologist. If you could live anywhere for a year, where would it be? I went to Prague a couple of years ago and I loved it. I would absolutely live there for a year. If you could only race one distance for the rest of your life, what would it be? I think the marathon. I like the little giggle that came before that, though. <laughs> of like, this is the sadistic answer, but right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> what was your first AOL or AIM screen name? Oh, man. Oh, I can't, I don't remember my first, but in college, it was ASC Girl 04 because I went to Agnes Scott College, which is the ASC. And I graduated from college in 2004. Love that for you. (laughs) If you could take a class in anything, what would it be? Uh, I'm thinking about taking a sign language class. That's awesome. Love that answer. Tell me three things that you love about yourself. I'm honest. I'm a good listener. And I love a dance party. Yes. Give everyone listening a reason to run today. Because you can. Get out there and experience the outdoors or your treadmill just because. There are lots of people that are unable or injured or for whatever reason can't, and we can. It is the best answer. It is my favorite answer. Courtney, I have so loved this conversation. I've loved finally getting to chat with you after many years of following from afar. I so appreciate you taking the time to be here. And I so appreciate your voice. Keep using it. Keep sharing. Thank you so much for all that you do. Thanks, Allie, for having me. This was a lot of fun. Um, You're really good at what you do. And I enjoyed it. Thank you so much for being here for this episode of the Alley on the Run show. And let's all give a big collective thank you to Courtney for joining us today and for doing so much to change the world for the better. All right, basic reminders and announcements time to wrap this up. Ready? You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Alley on the Run 1 and on Facebook at the Alley on the Run page and in the Alley on the Run show Best Running Friends group. Lots of fun in that group. Lots of great discussion. The only rule is you have to be nice. So come and join us. Be kind. 
lots of good stuff happening there. You can also check out my Patreon page if that's something you're into. It is patreon.com slash on the run. We've already built up quite the community over there. You get bonus episodes every month. I would love for you to check it out and see if that's something you might be interested in. Finally, if you are loving the show and want the world to know, the best way to do that is by sharing, by telling a friend, and by leaving a rating and review for the show on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. I love, love, love hearing from you. It means so much to me. I appreciate you, and I appreciate Aftershocks, the very last thing here. Thanks, thanks, thanks. Big thank you to our sponsor, Aftershocks, for always being there for us. Go to ontherun.aftershocks.com for 15% off the wireless headphone of your choice. Remember, you've got this. You're doing great. And thank you for joining me on the run.